Hey, y'all. My name is Jonathan Martin, and welcome back to the Zeitcast. I am on my back porch right now. Uh, my friend Stella is with me. It's a beautiful spring day. I want to get right down to business uh, because there's some things that have been stirring in me. And yet, as much as I want to say about all of it, I'd really like to keep this as focused as I possibly can. So I'll start like this. I've spent a lot of years of my life arguing with people. Um, I wasn't actually especially good at anything extracurricular when I was in high school until we had a debate program my senior year. And I found the one thing I really felt like I knew how to do, which is not to say I was great. Um, I do think I got a more or less perfect score on every debate. Major achievement in life, right? This is one thing I felt like I thrived in. I, I'm not afraid of debate. I'm okay with debate. If you've followed me or my trajectory in the last few years, you know I've done a lot less of that. A lot of it for my own mental health. Um, also, just living a lot of life and like it's not good for me to constantly be in a stew. Uh, I'd way rather be focused on something constructive and good. I want to build something new. I want to be part of building something that's so much more interesting to me than tearing anything down or tearing anything apart. So what that's meant for me is not exactly retreat, but maybe, yeah, try not to look over my shoulder so much at uh, what other people are saying or doing that I know are just going to rile me um, and really trying not to not to go there. We're in a polarized time and moment and all those kinds of things. And I, I would rather be a voice that's constructive, that's building something beautiful. However, however, big however, whenever I do immerse myself, whenever I do put myself back out there, I'm always, I'm so jarred because I'm aware that the God that I believe in, the God that I feel like I've come to see through Jesus of Nazareth, uh, risen from the dead, is so different. And I'm I'm aware, and I say this not in a spirit of wanting to disfellowship anybody, denounce anybody, because uh, of more than enough of that happening. But it does. I, I recognize I'm like, oh, so much of what I hear, it it feels like a wildly different religion. And you wonder how is it possible that people can be reading from the same scriptures, can be reading uh ostensibly about the same Jesus and come to such radically different conclusions. How does that happen within the same household of faith, to use a term of Paul's? Uh, well, rather than just going hard at some of these things or against some of these things, what I'd really like to do is take just a couple moments to talk about some foundations and to talk about these foundations in a way that I hope will be accessible so that if you're a, a person who maybe feels like you've been jailbroken a bit and you're on a journey uh, like me and a lot of my friends are, awesome. You may not be on this kind of journey at all. You might be resistant of it. You might be suspicious. Um, wherever you are, maybe this is something you want to send to somebody that you know. I wanted to just share a couple basic things from the scriptures, uh, scriptures that for me are holy, that are inspired, that are authoritative, that shape the the arc of my life and of my soul. I just want to share a couple of texts that I hope might break open how you think just a little bit. I'm not claiming that this is anything profound, but this is something um, I've just been rolling around literally in the last couple hours. It just felt like it could be relevant for somebody. So 
Only other preface I want to give is this. At the heart of any of these disagreements within those who would all name some version of Christian faith really is interpretation, right? How we read Scripture, how we interpret Scripture, how we interpret the text of our lives, how we interpret the text of um, culture in this moment, what God is or is not doing in this moment, who God is or is not using. And I find that the through line for so many folks that seem to be in a very different place than I would be about this is they have this very clear sense, and they will tell you, um, the Bible for them is very clear. Um, what the Bible says is very clear. They are not conscious that they are doing interpretive work at all. In fact, the sense is whatever the sermon is, uh, whatever the riff, the article, the book, like whatever, oh, I'm not, I'm not even giving commentary. I'm just telling you what, what God says. Uh, remember the whole God said it. I believe it. That settles it. A lot of those folks wouldn't like that. They'd say, well, God just said it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not, brother. But that's kind of the the spirit of the thing is that, you know, cut and dried. Well, um, here's the thing. I want to show you just from a couple of texts, while we could do this in so many different directions, this for me is a helpful little exercise in exactly why it is and how it is. We have to be open to be challenged in how we read these texts and how that's not out of some new wavy, new agey, catching on to the new blah, 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 how the texts themselves demand that we do um, a, a deeper, richer, more nuanced interpretive work. Three verses, uh, three or so verses, very simply. First one is this, Psalm 24. Psalms, the hymnal of the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible, um, of the church. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. I think about this in the King James. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I've always loved the King James translation of that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But here in the NRSV, the earth is the Lord's and all that live in it, the world and those who live in it. And on a day like today, is that a beautiful thing to think about when you see creation uh, all around me in this moment, 70 Eight degrees in Greencastle, Indiana, uh, at five fifteen in the afternoon. The earth is the Lord, is the Lord's, and all that is in it. The world and those who live in it. So do you hear, do you hear this? Everything on the earth belongs to God, and all that is in it. And specifically, note the phrasing: the world and those who live in it. The world belongs to God. The world is created by God. The world is celebrated not only by God, but by this text. Now, a verse that if you've been around church for any amount of time in your life, you, I'm sure that you know, John three sixteen. So Jesus says here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, it's funny, I looked away from the page really, and of course I retreat back to the King James on that too. But God so loved the world. Um, now for most Christians, we can get a consensus on that statement, that God loves the world. We do have a a certain faction within our company who would have difficulty saying that. 
because uh, they have a theology that says God not only hates sin, but hates sinners, and that God only really loves the elect, and uh, Jesus only really died for the elect. And very unfortunate, actually, when you can't actually um, simply affirm what is the most basic statement, really, of Christian theology, and that is that God loves the world, that God loves the whole world. But most of us can agree, I think, that God loves the world. Y'all tracking so far? Nothing super complicated. But now let's look at 1 John. 1 John uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride and riches comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. So I got a question for you. Not as a radical leftist, not trying to be a radical anything. Which is it? I mean, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yet 1 John chapter 2 says, do not love the world or the things of the world for whatsoever things are from the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is passing away. So which is it? Um, we are told that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And yet at the same time, the way Jesus is known by everybody, the, the reputation among Jesus, among the saints and the sinners, if you will, is that he is the friend of sinners. That's the specific phrase, friend of sinners. So what is it? Uh, are you supposed to be friends with sinners or are you not supposed to be friends with the world? Is, does the world belong to God? Is the world created good? Um, does God love the world or are we supposed to not love the things of the world? Because everything connected to the world is, um, connected to baser, more selfish desires and are ultimately passing away. Well, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to come to the conclusion that clearly these texts must be talking about different things. They're using the same language, they're using the same words, but they're gesturing towards very different realities. How can we even argue with this, right? Um, if on the one hand, uh, I mean, if, you know, and again, you don't have to like smooth out all the, all the tensions, uh, but ostensibly, right? These texts must be talking about different things. There is a way in which the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, uh, the world and all that is in it. There is a way in which God loves the world, and yet there is a way that we are supposed to not love the world or the things of the world. See, this is why words matter so much. This is why definitions matter so much. What do we mean when we talk about the world? Well, I think what Psalm 24 means, uh, at least in part, the world is everything that's all around me. Um, the trees and the birds that I hear in the background and the beautiful flowers and Stella in my lab, I am pretty sure that all of that is from God, belongs to God, is part of a creation that is fallen, but also ultimately 
was created good and bears the creativity and the the particularity of the creator and is a thing to be celebrated. Do you think that God wants you to hate the sky and the flowers and the grass and your dog? Do you think, well, that's just the world. It's just passing away. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't think uh, next to nobody thinks that, right? And the Psalms would, you know, wouldn't want us to think this way. Now, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, in that context, the world seems to be pretty clearly people. The world is comprised of people. Uh, the world is comprised of all kinds of people of all creeds and nationalities and uh, ethnicities, origins, all the things. Uh, in the diversity of creation, there is such a rich diversity of human beings who are deeply and desperately loved by God. Do you think that we are supposed to hate the very thing that God loves so much that God would sacrifice God's own self for? Obviously not. And most people say, yeah, sure. Well, nobody would say that, right? Uh, I don't know. Because these these terms get collapsed, don't they? And used in all kinds of ways. Hey, you got to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For whatsoever is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I mean, all that is passing away. Now, what I would contend for, and I don't think I'm doing anything revolutionary here, is that in the when First John talks about the world, it is not talking about creation. And it's not talking about people. The world in First John is in reference to a system, to a structure. I'm not just riffing here. This is all over. Uh, I know we're talking about Johannine literature right here, but this is Paul over and over again. Uh, for we wrestle not, Ephesians, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, these rulers in all kinds of places, right? So um, there's always this idea of there is a a world that is not people, it is principality, it is systems and structures. I would contend these are systems and structures that oppress. Folks, I'm not making this up. I'm convinced of this down to my big old toenails that um, the basis of this thing that we call sin, this thing, um, that, that so much of scripture, right? Prophets on down, all the, all the things that are condemned. I see this at every turn now. Uh, it always has to do with exploitation in some form. It always has to do with human beings being used, with creation being used, with, um, uh, with people, uh, and places being treated like objects instead of cherished and received as a gift. Exploitation is always at the heart of the thing. Uh, people use different words, uh, words for this. I would comfortably use the word empire. You may or may not like that word, but I think it's a good one for this reason, especially think about the New Testament. This is all written in context against the backdrop of a Roman empire. That world, which is not rocks and trees, which is not animals, which is not even people, that world is built on a system and a structure that enslaves, that oppresses. Uh, it is built on a system and structure. And over and over again through the New Testament, right, the call is to come out from, to come apart from that world, not the people of the world, 
not to not have friendships with people who don't share your faith, which the um, the Lord of the church clearly models for us the way friendship is supposed to look like. It doesn't mean come apart from people. It doesn't mean come apart from uh, families. It's a, No, that's not the idea, but come apart from the world that is that system. And we see in Revelation, people resist this system. They resist this structure, loving not their own lives even unto death. Ooh. Well, that's some language. Um, the refusal to bow to that structure, to that system. I don't have time to get into end times and all that kind of stuff, but you do understand this mark of the beast 666 in Revelation. This is not a future reality. The system and the structure of the world, there is a way that you have to buy in. There is a mark that you have to take in order to buy and to sell. That's true right here, right now. Uh, this is not about a microchip. This is a, this is about buying into a system. And what we see in the book of Revelation is there's this radical call against the backdrop of the Roman Empire that I also believe projects into the future, into the empire that we're living in now that says, don't take the mark. Don't give into the systems of buying and selling. Don't let your life be all about profits. Don't let your life be about um, that empire is driven by economic concerns that are not the concerns of the God who inspires this text, certainly not the God who raised up uh, Israel out of Egypt and um Jesus of Nazareth up out of the dead. Yeah, these are very, very different systems. Come out from that world. Uh, in Revelation, this is given in stark contrast to those who participate with, uh, the, the whore of Babylon, right? They are, um, they are lured, they are seduced by these principalities, these structures of buying and selling and owning and lording and enslaving and being in charge and power and status is always at the, at the heart of this. To go to the language in First John, man, I've got, I am out of time. I was going to be done already, and I feel like I'm just opening up. Maybe there has to be a part two. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What is all of that about? Well, I am convinced that it's not ultimately about naughtiness. When you are driven by the lust of the flesh, whatever I want, I put my own needs and desires above that of the community. Uh, the lust of the eyes, if I can see it, I should be able to, to have it, which causes to live from a place of grasping. The pride of life, it's all ego, right? It's ego. Understand again, that in the same way that you just saw in these texts, I, I walk you through it in a way that I hope would be very clear that I'm not making this up. I'm not generating this. You know, we have Psalm 24 celebrates the goodness of the world. Uh, John's gospel talks about how God loves the world. First John is telling us now not to love the world or the things in the world. So we see how world means different things in different places, right? Okay. We're right in the same spirit because this is an equally disastrous thing when people misinterpret these words. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about the flesh, and he contrasts the spirit to the flesh, uh, this deep soul life to the flesh. We all, I can guarantee you Paul was not talking about our bodies. How do we know this? Because the New Testament is written in protest to the kind of theology that says bodies are bad, but the spirit is good. This is the prominent thought in Greek or Roman culture within 
Paul's time is that, oh, we need to transcend the body. Uh, great arcade fire song, by the way. Uh, my body is a cage, but it's not good Christian theology. Our bodies is, our bodies are actually not a cage. In fact, Christians, this is the reason why people, uh, in the first few centuries of Christianity, not only would persecute and kill Christians, but often would burn their bodies is to make a mockery of their belief in a physical resurrection of the body where whatever the afterlife looks like, it is something of these elements. Something of this skin, this flesh and blood, this DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not even a shot that Paul is saying, hate your bodies. Your bodies are bad. The bodies are, is equated with like animal stirrings, but the spirit stuff is good. No, no, no. Paul and all the apostles are fighting this teaching at every turn. But if you listen to a lot of Christian preachers now on radio, on TV, on YouTube, podcasts, like whatever, you wouldn't think that, would you? Because they will give you the idea that the world itself is bad, that what's passing away are not the structures and systems of the world, are not principalities and powers that simply will not withstand the goodness of the coming king. And so, no, 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 they don't, they don't see it that way. They don't see that it's the, that it's the structural realities that oppress and exploit that are passing away, not the grass, not the sea. Um, this is just not the idea. It's not our bodies are bad, but see, oh gosh, there's so many people who are living in a world where it's us against them. The world is out to get me. The world is out to get us. Uh, the, the, the world, the world, the world. And it's, and so then at every turn, there's vitriol and there's a martyr complex and there's a sense of being persecuted in all kinds of directions because they think they're supposed to be at war with people. They think that they're supposed to be at war with their neighbors, not that God loves their neighbors deeply and desperately. They don't see the goodness that is in created things. And weirdly enough, man, I didn't mean to go here because I'm trying not, I, I'm, I'm really trying to be helpful and this is going to be feisty. Here's what's really weird. Actually, the same thing that Paul's addressing in the church at Corinth that I talked about in the last Zeitcast, if you caught that, the sermon I did for Jared McKenna and his wonderful new church in Melbourne. Um, it, it, actually, what's, what's happening is that our, the tables within the church look just like the tables within the world. Same power structures of privilege. It's still about wealth. It's still about status. It's still about economics. It's still about control. It's still about domination. It's still about dominion as opposed to cherishing. It's still uh, 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 closing your fist and grasping and grabbing instead of opening your hands and receiving uh, Eucharist, receiving life, receiving grace as a gift, two very different ways of being the world. People within the church are not only allowed to live that way, they're rewarded for living that way. Church affirms the system. Church affirms the empire. Church affirms the principalities. Church affirms the power and then yells about all the people who are so bad and dark and dirty and going to hell where it's like, oh, oops. (laughs) If we are partaking of the same mark, if, uh, if we are willing to do whatever it takes to buy and sell and to prop up our economy and to put our own concerns over the concerns of others, uh, we're willing to do whatever it takes to lift ourselves up, we're, we put people down if that's what needs to happen. You know, it's all the same. That's the world. That's the world that is passing away. But because people misunderstand these words like the world, like the flesh. Again, I'm not disfellowshipping anybody, I'm not calling anybody a heretic. Uh, I'm not in the mood. I don't have the heart 
for that. I am too worn out with it. I say with deep and sincere heartbreak, when you misinterpret a handful of these words, you accidentally wander into a whole different religion. And instead of a... uh of a spirituality where the body is to be cherished and the body is to be honored and the body is consecrated and um, the earth itself is consecrated and God is found in, uh, in materiality, which is what we see. I'm not trying to use big words. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. In opposition to the people who say materiality is bad and you need to transcend it and get into your spirit is here is a God who creates things good, affirms the, and dignifies human things. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are fallen. Yes, we are confused. Yes, we need help. But ultimately, God sees that original goodness that is placed within us. God sees us for who we are and who we must become. And yet it is so sad when people of faith are the ones who see in the most horrible and horrifying way. They don't see the best in other people. They don't see the best in their neighbors. They see the worst in them. Have you ever seen this in a family system? I've seen it up close and personal. And because I'm feeling a little bit wild right now, I just about uh, broke into a thing that I'm not going to do. I've seen this in the lives of people so close to me. Where uh, to see the, the, uh, oh, your family are not the ones who pull for you. Your families are not the one who believes in you. They're the ones who believe the worst about you. They're the ones who make the worst assumptions. This is not the place where you're safe and where people will always see like the best in you. Oh no, the, the people who, uh, in terms of biologically you are closest to are the people who are most likely to see you as evil and defiled. Well, I got a word for y'all. To the pure, all things are pure. But for those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And that's what I see and hear so much in the rhetoric from the church right now is that it defi- is that in the very act of calling people vile and calling people filthy and doing all this calling out, that it doesn't actually dehumanize the people around them. It dehumanizes the people who are talking like that. And all it does is reinforce, uh, in, in, in an attempt to name darkness, um, this is what darkness actually looks like, is that instead of what we see in Jesus, uh, a God who sees the beauty beneath the rubble, who sees the capacity and the endless capacity for restoration and redemption. We see filth. We see abomination. Um, uh, we see with judgment. We see with pride, the very pride of life that is the world. I want to tell you something right now. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, unfortunately, are not things that are mostly out there. One could even argue that Christians are often so embedded with these principalities that maybe we're worse at this than anybody else. I have got to stop. I hope you'll think about it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that is in it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, yet love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I'd like you to think about this text, but I'd like you to think about this in particular. For some of you and how you think about scripture, you got some work to do. You got some homework to do. You got to redefine some terms. You got to grapple with some stuff you don't want to grapple with. You got to get to the thing beneath the thing because that theology that's superficial and toxic and doesn't understand what words mean kills people 
kills creation, abandons creation, and instead of seeing the goodness of God in the people around us, and instead of seeing capacity for redemption, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that um, that that can that literally condemns everyone around us. We are the light of the world, ostensibly. That is the idea. Paul says creation is longing for the manifestation of the children of God. How sad is it when the children of God, instead of being manifested, are sitting around griping and complaining about how awful and bad that it is, and in doing so, that very sort of judgment, that very sort of ego they participate in these systems of the world, which is precisely the thing that First John is saying not to love, but to oppose. I say this gently, but in the name of Jesus, some of y'all have got some work to do.